You should be in Isaiah 43 on your device or in your Bible. The topic we find there, the Lord tells the Jews to not remember certain things from their past. The title of our message, forget about it. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we've come into this place to worship you. We want to receive from you, Lord, from your grace, from your mercy, from your love. Your word is alive, it's powerful. It's just been read, Lord. It's going to be read again. It's going to be commented on. And then your Holy Spirit is going to take all that in our heart of hearts and make application of it to our lives. The Bible says we see through a glass dimly now, later face to face, but I pray that you would give us some clear vision of you today. What a great love. What a great Savior. We pray for the kids over in the youth building, Lord, that they would be hearing about Jesus at their own level and that they would receive you, Lord, at the earliest possible age, walk with you all the days of their lives that you've granted them. If there's anyone here, Lord, in the adult assembly that doesn't know you, I pray that your conviction, which is already working on them, would continue, Lord, and that the word would lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Often considered Italian-American mafia slang, forget about it, is just East Coast English. It entered the Oxford English Dictionary in 2016. The definition reads, in representations of regional speech, associated especially with New York and New Jersey, forget about it is used to indicate that a suggested scenario is unlikely or undesirable. Their sample sentence, so you think you'll have enough money to retire? Forget about it. <laughs> Look with me at verse 18. Do not remember the former things, nor consider things of old. In the NIV, do not remember is rendered forget the former things. Then in the MSG, the message paraphrase Bible, it says do not remember, and that's rendered forget about what happened. What former things happened to the Jews that they're being told to forget about? Well, this chapter, as we'll see, is especially interested in their dispersions. In verses 5 and 6, we read, I will bring your descendants from east, gather you up from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, uh, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. The emphasis here is on the Lord bringing them back from various dispersions uh, that they had experienced uh, out in the world over their history. And so I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, don't forget to forget the former things. And number two, do remember to remember the future things. Let's talk about former things in verses 1 through 22. Now, the word diaspora refers to a large group of people who share a cultural and regional origin, but are living away from their traditional homeland, usually by a forced emigration or exile. The nation of Israel was dispersed several times. Two major times that we encounter in Isaiah involve Assyria and Babylon. Not involved in Isaiah, but later in their history, would be two uh, diasporas involving Rome. Writing before 62 AD, the book of James is addressed, he says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And then in 70 AD, the Romans sacked Jerusalem and took the temple apart stone by stone. 
Jews fled all over the world, and they remained in that diaspora until May of 1948. Now, we, by the way, we always say that uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, but there was a campaign leading up to that, and there was stuff after that. So it's, it's generally, we use that 70 AD, but it's more like 68 AD to 73 AD. It was a period of time, but at any rate... Uh, they were scattered at that time, not, and they hadn't returned until after World War II. And so we pick up there at verse 1, But now says the Lord, who created uh, you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Abraham was chosen to become the father of a new nation. His grandson Jacob would be the father of the 12 tribes uh, from which that nation would come, the nation of Israel. In the book of Exodus, God said that he redeemed the nation from slavery when they were in Egypt. Every Jew in the nation is called, and many believe and are saved. The Jews who believe God, as Abraham did, are the Lord's. They are justified by grace through faith, just as was Abraham. And so when we say that Israel is God's chosen nation, we don't mean that every Jew, every Jewish person is saved. We mean that God chose them the way he chose Abraham. Of Abraham, we read he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness or he was saved. And so that is the example to every Jew. They must believe God and he will give them his righteousness. Uh, and so uh, many Jews did not believe uh, and they... Uh, but there will always be a remnant of Jews in any time that does. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Now, in point of fact, the Jews suffered greatly throughout their human history. For every Daniel untouched by lions, there were multitudes who were killed. This then is a national promise to protect his people from total destruction. And as I just said, the Lord always preserves and protects a remnant of Jews. Uh, Isaiah is a book that deals a lot with nations, the nation of Israel as a whole, the nation of Assyria, of Babylon, of, of Persia, those kinds of things. And, and sure, it's okay to think in individual terms. We do a lot in the United States because we, we love our individual liberties. Uh, but still, we are a nation under God, as are all the nations, and God uh, has, the nations have dealings with each other on a national level. And so, uh, again, not all Jews are saved, but within Israel, many are or were at this time. And so when it says, a lot of, you didn't suffer, I kept you from that, uh, it means it wasn't the kind of thing that was going to destroy them. Verse 3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. 150 years future from Isaiah, the Jews would be conquered and taken away by Babylon. After 70 years, the Lord raised up King Cyrus of Persia to free the Jews and permit them to go home. Thomas Constable writes, perhaps the Lord would give Persia rulership over Egypt, Ethiopia, and Seba as rewards for allowing the Israelites to return to their homeland. And verse 4, since you were precious in my sight, you've been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Despite their history of faithlessness and failure, the Lord would honor them 
whenever they repented and turned to him. What remarkable grace and love. Uh, I mean, they, the children of Israel were blowing it all the time. In the book of Judges, there was this cycle that kept repeating. Spiritual, then apathetic, then completely against God. And then the Lord would raise up a judge, and he would, the nation would repent, and then that would start again. First generation would be spiritual, next generation would be uh, apathetic, and then the final generation would be completely out uh, in left field. And yet God kept using them. The nation of Israel was so bad, in fact, that it prompted Christians throughout the ages to conclude that God has closed the book on Israel, no longer deals with them. They say any and all promises God made to Israel are transferred to the church. The answer to that is no, 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 emphatic no. The Apostle Paul said God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And I'm glad for that because if he could cast away Israel, then he could cast away the church and he could cast away me and you. Uh, and the Lord is going to keep his promises to Israel. That's what the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble is all about. It's getting them back on track so that when the Messiah comes at the end of that seven years, Israel has received them as the Messiah. And at that time, all living Jews will be saved. There won't be any Jew on earth that isn't a believer in Jesus Christ when he returns. In the International Standard Version, the end of verse four reads, I'm giving up people in your place and nations in exchange for your life. Now we know from the Bible that the Lord has installed supernatural rulers over the nations. This wording makes it sound like the Lord is playing a supernatural version of Monopoly. You know, that, that I, I've, this is what I gave for you. I landed on, you know, uh, Dowdy, and I, had, I wanted to buy that up and put a hotel on it. I'm beating this guy over here who's only got Riverdale, no hotels, you know, maybe. <laughs> No hotels out there. But, uh, you know, it, it, that's what it sounds like. And, and so you have to ask yourself, would God really negotiate with supernatural terrorists? Well, before you answer, remember the first two chapters in the book of Job. It, it was a negotiation. God said, well, I want you to consider Job my servant. And the devil said, mm, let's do this. And God said, okay, let's do that, but no more. And they, they entered into a negotiation. And then... The devil failed. He came back and he got into, a, 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 you know, he, he doubled down. He, was, he says, I'm all in now, right? I never understood all in. But anyway, I'm all in. And God said, okay, you can do this, this, and this, but not more. And, and uh, he defeats the devil again because you can never out-negotiate God, obviously. One of my favorite Far Side cartoons years ago was God on Jeopardy. You remember that one? God was, they had uh, Alex Trebek is over here and God's on Jeopardy behind, and there's three podiums. God is standing at one and there, his, his score is like 300 million trillion. I mean, it's just going off like that. And the other two people are there with zero or less than zero and stuff. And so it's not fair to, when they negotiate with the Lord. I mean, he's gonna win. You might think, well, poor Job. I mean, betting with his life, Job understood by the end of the book that he had been tried and tested and came forth as pure gold. He said, I, I thought I knew God before, but now I really know him. And so you get no argument from Job. And so a lot of times people argue, oh, you know, God's not fair and God allows suffering and all that. Ask Job. Why not ask the guy who it happened to? 
It didn't ha- did it happen to you? No. Ask him. And that's what he says. He goes, I came forth as gold. Now I thought I knew God. Now I know him face to face. In the MSG paraphrase, again, it reads, that's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I would sell the whole world to get you back. Trade the creation just for you. There's an old song I like. It goes, uh, you know, like something I can't remember. Uh, how does it go? Uh, it'll come to me later. What an idiot. I knew, I was, I knew that was going to happen. If the sun refuses to shine, I would still be loving you. When the mountains crumble to the sea, there would still be you and me. That's what the Lord is saying here. He says, I I love you. If it was just you, I would do whatever, I'd sell everything off for you. In fact, in the New Testament, the pearl of great price, that's what it's about. You are the pearl of great price that the Lord gives everything for so that he can take you to himself. I'm also constantly pointing out that Isaiah is writing to and about Israel, not the church. But when something is said that is universal of God, we claim it for ourselves. And we know that Jesus has this same self-sacrificing love for you and I that is portrayed here in the Old Testament. And the Lord does negotiate even for us from a position of almighty power. You might remember that Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Again, a very Jobian scene. Uh, A negotiation is going on in heaven where the devil came, and he said, hey, things are coming to a head here with the disciples and all of this. He He goes, I want to sift Peter like wheat. And Jesus prayed for him, and, and uh, what happened was Peter does have some problems, but he repents and returns to the Lord. And so the Lord is our negotiator. Verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. I'll bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I'll say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. The Jews would be taken away by force to Babylon. This, however, is not the diaspora return Israel is describing because a lot of Jews chose to remain in Babylon when they were set free. And those who returned did not come from all points of the compass or from the ends of the earth. They only came back from Babylon. Isaiah prophesied that all nations would be involved in this future. And so here we are looking at the time of Jacob's trouble. We are looking at that seven-year period of time when the Lord brings Israel back after their scattering. Uh, Verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. We know from elsewhere in the Bible, in both Testaments, that all Israel will be saved. We know from Matthew 25 and uh, the Revelation that multitudes of Gentiles will be saved during that time. The Great Tribulation will be the greatest single time of evangelism that the world has ever known. There will be 144,000 untouchable Jews sharing the gospel. There will be two witnesses for three and a half years sharing the gospel who can't be killed and who do miracles. A great angel will fly around in the heavens sharing the gospel, uh, you know, audibly so that people can understand. Here when it says uh, God created and formed and made us, 
I think there's more to it than God forming us in the womb. Now, don't get me wrong, as Tony the Tiger would say, that's great. All right. I like to have interaction there, you know. I think it's referring to the fact that as believers, we are called new creatures and that God is going to make a new creation at the consummation of the age. In fact, he talks about doing a new thing. The great uh, tribulation isn't the new thing, really, but the millennial kingdom that follows it is because God's going to remake the earth. Uh, and, of course, we, you and I who are of the church, we will be in our glorified bodies, new creatures uh, in a new creation. And it will be a really new creation after the millennium ends and God literally restores and recreates the earth. And so uh, this, the point of this chapter really is look forward to what God is doing and is going to do. Live as though you really believed the promises of God that we're going to be in heaven forever with Jesus and that there will be a glorious, beautiful, sin-free environment. Verse 8, bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. That's kind of a weird statement. What he's saying is, I'm talking about real people here. Not, this isn't a, uh, an analogy or you know, just uh, an illustration. He goes, if we were in court, I would want these kinds of handicapped people to be my witnesses. Um, we've all seen enough TV trials to be familiar with expert witnesses, right? The expert witnesses God would call upon are these physically handicapped people. Not exactly our choice, right? I mean, if, if you're looking for an expert witness or testimony, you, you probably don't want the blind man, right? The, I'm a forensic expert. I am blind. Uh, I do everything with my sense of smell. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, you want your best effort foot forward, you know? And there's always the, uh, the expert who's like a washed out doctor that, you know, testifies on, at hundreds of trials and says whatever you want. And he's all... You know, he looks like Columbo and that kind of thing, you know, and stuff. And, and of course, you know, he's not an expert at all. And so God says, oh, yeah, that's my expert. Bring him on because uh, they're going to, because you know what? He goes on to say that the, uh, the enemies of God, they are spiritually blind and deaf. And yet these physically blind and deaf have a greater spiritual depth than they do because they take God at his word and at face value. God uses the foolish things, doesn't he? He uses you, he uses me. It's hard for us, it's so hard for us because nobody wants to be thought of as a foolish person. But if you're a Christian, somewhere in your life, and, may, and obviously lots of time, but somewhere along the line, you're going to make a decision or decisions that just seem foolish. But they're led by God. You don't have to go out of your way to do it. You don't, you don't want to make yourself do foolish things. But at some point, God's going to call you to do something or to give something or to be somewhere. Or I don't know what it would be. And everyone else is going to think you're a fool and that you're making a huge mistake and that you're not in the main flow. You're not in the mainstream. And, and a lot of times, that kind of pressure will keep us from doing things that God has called us to do. Will, call, will keep us from making the sacrifices that he's called us to make. You know, because nobody would do that. 
you know, a lot of it has, to, or a lot of the illustrations I would use would have to do with money. But um, you know, sometimes you know people say, well, here's you know, here's how you handle your money at all times. You know, and they've got it all dialed out because they follow some scheme. And then God comes along and says, hey, I want you to give all your money here. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. That'd be foolish. Well, I'll talk about it, sure. But anyway. <laughs> anyway, I think you get the idea. It's, you know, it's, it, the guys in the Bible, I mean, they were doing foolish things all the time. People quit their jobs and go into the ministry. They, you know, go overseas. They do this, they do that. Um, and, and so we... You know, we want to live a normal life that, that isn't filled with that kind of excitement, right? But the Lord uses foolish things. Verse 9, let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and uh, show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. Show us former things points to God being 100% accurate in his prophecies. 100%. He's no you know, Nostradamus or some of these TV people who say something bogus and mystical and they kind of reinterpret it as a fulfillment of prophecy. God even names names. We'll get to in Isaiah where he says, Cyrus is coming. And this was 150 years before Cyrus came. And it causes critics to say, Isaiah couldn't have written that because he couldn't have known that because that's a prophecy. And we don't believe in prophecy. And God says, well, I do. And here it is. So verse 10, you're my witnesses, says the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me. There was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, are my witness, therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. I am he, I am the Lord, I am God. God demands a verdict. Eternal life hangs in the balance. Let's say you're not a believer here today. That's what, that's what you keep hearing. I am he, I am the Lord, I am God. What are you going to do about it? I mean, God, God is shouting with love and with grace, I am God, I am your God, I formed you in your mother's womb. I, I want to give you eternal life with me. And so uh, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. Three times the Lord said, you are my witnesses. The question is, am I a credible witness? Am I, are you credible witnesses for Jesus? If somebody examined your life a little bit, would they think you were a witness for Jesus or for the opposition? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been subpoenaed twice in my life. Uh, for ministry things, not, not involving me, but just as a witness. And um, either way, it could have went where, where either side could have subpoenaed me, right? Because uh, you're, everybody thinks I, you know, for them. And um, I would have just told the truth. Luckily, I got out of it, you know, and stuff. But um, that's the idea. If, if you got a subpoena, would it be from Jesus to represent him or not? And so you talk to the Lord about that. Verse 13, indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, who could reverse it? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. 
little technical point here, the Chaldeans are the ethnic people who for a time ruled the Babylonian Empire. So there's really no Babylonians per se, there are Chaldeans and other uh, groups that were part of Babylon. And it's like New York, you know, you're not a New Yorker in one sense, right? You're not a genetic New Yorker. Uh, you're an Italian-American or Irish-American or African-American who lives in New York, and that's the idea. Chaldeans were the people, Babylon was the place. In Babylon, the Jews would read what Isaiah prophesied over a century earlier. They'd be encouraged to paraphrase Dr. Lazarus in Galaxy Quest. God would never give up, never surrender. Verse 16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. This is another nod to the exodus from Egypt. When God parted the Red Sea for Israel, he drowned the pursuing Egyptians. This was the kind of past event that they should remember. But now in verse 18, it says, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. The diaspora in particular was not to occupy their minds. This kind of forgetting is expressed by the Apostle Paul when he writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so verse 19, behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. Uh, this is a millennial scene, you know, where the animals are all getting along and we're getting along with them and streams break out in the desert and the earth is being restored. This is the thousand-year kingdom of God on earth after all of Israel is taken through the great tribulation and saved to greet Jesus at his return. Verse 21, this people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Singing praises to the Lord might be a part of what's meant here, but I think it's deeper than that. The word formed is molded. It would be a word you could use of a potter working with clay. God is molding his people, shaping them in such a way that their lives exude praise. Each of us ought to enlist the help of the Holy Spirit who indwells us so that not only are we singing praises to the Lord, at least in our hearts, but that we are living in a sense that is praiseworthy. And by that I mean that someone could examine our lives and not find that we are perfect, obviously. We never will be until we're with Jesus. But they would notice that we are doing everything we can to bring glory to God and to let them see that he is worthy of praise. The Apostle Paul wrote, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Jesus Christ. Commenting on that, Albert Barnes wrote this. He said, it may be and it is profitable for a Christian to look over the past mercies of God to his soul in order to awaken emotions of gratitude in the heart and to think of his shortcomings and errors, to produce penitence and humility. But none of these things should be allowed for one moment to divert the mind from the purpose to which uh, we are called, and that is to win the incorruptible crown. And it may be remarked in general that a Christian will make more rapid advances in piety by looking forward than by looking backward. 
Forward we see everything to cheer and animate us, the crown of victory, the joys of heaven, the society of the blessed, the Savior beckoning to us and encouraging us. Secondly, we see that there is a future to remember, verses 22 through 28. We interpret this set of verses in its context. The nation of Israel had been and would yet be dispersed, and God tells them point blank, it's your fault. The dispersions are your fault. The nation became a prodigal son who would never wake up to their status without the severe mercy drawing them back. Talked about this at length last week. Israel, instead of uh, conquering the surrounding cultures, they uh, welcomed the surrounding cultures. They became like the surrounding cultures and their practices. And so God said, I'm going to start slow by withholding the rain and your crops are going to fail and this kind of thing. If you don't understand that, then I'm going to bring nations against you who will besiege you and, and threaten you. And if you don't go for that, then I'm going to have to take you into captivity. Allow these nations to do that. And, and we think, wow, that is really hard. That is really harsh. But the, the alternative would be to completely turn your back on Israel to the point that they allowed themselves to be destroyed and uh, you know, consumed by these other nations so that in May of 1948, there was no Israel, right? And, and so, yes, it's harsh, but if these people are not going to repent unless you get to that level, you, you have to go to that level. And so they were a prodigal, but not the kind that was going to wake up. It was the kind that needed to be awoken. And so verse 22, but you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. You've not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You've, brought me, you've bought me rather no sweet cane with money, you, uh, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities." Talk about a one-sided relationship. The more the Lord blessed them, the more they burdened him with their sins. In fact, the, the worse they got. We know something about this kind of rebuke. Jesus wrote to his church in Ephesus. He said, you have left your first love. It wasn't on account of backsliding and sin, but rather because they were doing the work of God in the energy of the flesh. You know, it's obvious when sin is the problem but not so much when a person is laboring with patience and persevering, but it's equally, if not more, dangerous because that person thinks they're in the will of God when they're not. A.W. Tozer, the greatest quote I think I, I've ever heard about this is the one, I, I use it all the time, but A.W. Tozer said that if the Holy Spirit, if God the Holy Spirit were removed from the majority of churches, 95% of the activity in that church would go on uninterrupted because it's being done in the energy of the flesh and not the energy of the spirit, not in yielding to the spirit. And it's a startling statement, but it's probably correct in many cases, and it behooves us to say, Lord, are we really being led by you? Is this the direction you want us to be going, or is it just the direction we, everyone is pushing for? And so we have to be constantly aware of that. Verse 25 I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Blots out is a word we would use for erase. 
Remember erasing things when you were a kid in school? It would go right through the paper, right? I mean, you just, oh, wow, you know, now, because they, they had that really super thin paper with all the lines on it and stuff. Here's something that some of you will remember, whiteout. Who remembers whiteout, right? Typing, kids used to type on a thing called a typewriter. There was no screen unless it was your television, your black and white TV, and you had to get up to change the channels. But anyway, this is why you were walking both ways uphill in snow uh, to go to school. But uh, whiteout, you're like, oh, oh, I misspelled that. Get the whiteout. And it was just like paint. You would paint the page. And you had to be really cautious because it would get, you know, to the other line and then you were in trouble. And for some reason, you never let it dry enough. Right? And then it would go, okay, bam. And then you, now you have a blot and you don't even know what the letter is. You turn in your paper and it's filled with the, all this. It's like damaged, you know? Crazy. And, of course, your typewriter always had one bad key. When I was in college, we had uh, IBM Selectrix in the uh, library, UC California, Riverside. I think they had two typewriters for the entire college, you know, and so, and so you were like sleeping in the hallway for your chance to use the IBM Selectric, and half the time the ball thing on it didn't work or it's, you know, somebody stole it. If you really wanted to get with, I mean, I'm not saying I ever did anything like that, but. I, gosh, the things you think about me, really, just. Our ledgers are not going to look that way. It'll be just as if we'd never sinned. We, we might say to God, Lord, what about that? I don't know what you're talking about. I've chosen to not remember that. And that's where we're at. And so this is kind of a confrontation. He says, put me in remembrance. Let us contend. State your case. The Lord wants, you know, he says, hey, let's. I want you to admit that I'm right and you're wrong so that we can get back into this relationship. Your first father sinned and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. If this is a courtroom scene, we can think of this as a closing argument. Your first father has to be Abraham. Scripture unashamedly reveals times he was far out of the will of God. The Lord was saying, like father, like son, or I guess since it was Jacob, like father, like grandson. And so we're never going to be sinless or perfect in this life. But the Lord has made a way for us to have fellowship with him. Found guilty, the punishment of withholding blessing from the nation would be enforced. The princes of the sanctuary are the priests and their Levite assistants. They would become profane, a word that actually means, I think, out of the temple. But it, it has to do with carnality and material idolatrous pursuits. That example would corrupt the nation and the people would be in this downward spiral. And the Lord would have to do what he could and eventually raise up another nation to come against them and get them back on track. Uh, in the previous verses, the Lord promised he would bring them back from Babylon. If you're in Babylon in captivity, that's great. But if you're 100 years out, you're thinking, we have to go to Babylon? I mean, you don't leave Babylon except that you get brought there, right? And so this is a prediction. And so it's uh, to be taken to heart. Will the church be in the time of Jacob's trouble? Forget about it. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We are a future-oriented people. We are to forget things that are behind. Not everything, uh, and not fully, but we are to focus on what's ahead. Paul says it's like running a race. I have to have almost tunnel vision on the goal. I can't veer to the left or to the right. I can't have these things that weighed me down. I need to give them to the Lord. I need to ask forgiveness. I need to be released of the burdens. He said he would carry my burdens, that he cares for me. And so forgetting the past, I press forward towards that prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, some of us have terrible pasts, right? Horrible things happen to you. But even there, the Lord wants to step in and say, let's talk about this and let's think about where you're headed now and and what's there. Look at what I've done. I've made you a new creature. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And there's a whole new creation waiting for you. And so let's think about that. Dave Hunt wrote a book one time. says, whatever happened to heaven? Because Christians used to want to go to heaven. I think maybe the world was the kind of place where you'd want to go to heaven. You ever watch some of this stuff on the History Channel? You think, man, the smell alone would want me to want to go to heaven, right? In some of these places. Uh, but now we, you know, some people, they, it's almost heaven on earth. And they like the life here. Uh, but we shouldn't. We're made for heaven. And we'll never quite fit in here. And if, to the extent that we do, I think that we need to sit down before the Lord and say, Lord, have I, am I backslidden or what? And so don't be afraid. He loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love that can never fail. And whatever the Lord has for you is better than anything that you might think of for yourself. So think about the future and your place in it.